The following content is sponsored in partnership with Haymarket Media U.S. Welcome, everyone, to the Spoonful of Sugar podcast, which is brought to you in partnership with For America. We have a very special guest today who will help us tackle a critical topic in long-term care. For decades, critics have accused skilled care operators of neglecting quality. But the facts tell a very different story. Mark Parkinson, President and CEO of HCA, Aka Intel, will help set the record straight during the special Spoonful of Sugar podcast. I'm John O'Connor from Ignites, and I'll be co-hosting with TJ Griffin, who is the Chief Clinical Officer for For America. In each episode, we try to address important matters facing the industry today. But we also like to add a spoonful of sugar, which, as we all know, helps the medicine go down. TJ, uh, before we get started, can you fill us in on what you've been up to lately? Well, John, it's uh, we're at the height of flu season, and you know we have the new COVID booster coming out right now, and so you know we're gearing up to help our facilities, you know, go through that next round of vaccination with the, the new booster. So exciting times, a lot, lot of work, but uh, a lot of important work. Absolutely, thank you. All right, so let's get started. For decades, the nursing home sector has been an easy target. And it seems like the anti-industry chorus is, if anything, getting louder. We have seen the current administration accuse the sector of poor care. And most recently, CMS has proposed staffing requirements for facilities. But lost among the frequent criticism are facts that paint a very different picture. That's right, John. So today we are honored to have our distinguished guest with us, Governor Mark Parkinson, joining us. As everyone here surely knows, Mark is the president and CEO of the American Healthcare Association and the National Center for Assisted Living. In his role, he's a leading advocate for long-term care providers nationwide. Under his leadership, the industry has undergone a profound shift toward person-centered care, embracing innovative practices, leveraging technology to enhance the overall well-being of the residents that we serve. So, Mark, thank you for joining with us. TJ, great to be here. Thank you. So, Mark, uh, before we start, uh, how are you enjoying the show so far? Well, it's been great. You know, we've been at this now for a couple days. we got thousands of folks here with us in Denver. We're here at the Far America booth here on our exhibit floor. I, at any rate, we're, we're having a great time. And, you know, there's a lot of energy. It feels like we're getting kind of back to pre-pandemic attendance. And folks are enthused, concerned about stuff, but I think, you know, energized and ready to go. Well, Mark, we do have a number of questions for you to address today. But since we prepared our questions, CMS has proposed a rule that would put staffing mandates and requirements in place for skilled providers. Why don't you share your perspective with us on this development and how you're advising your members to respond? Well, you know, naturally we're disappointed at the rule. Uh, Providers are fighting like hell just to keep their businesses going, getting workers to fill all the shifts. And things have gotten a little bit better, but, you know, we've still got a ways to go. We're down over 100,000 workers from where we were before the pandemic. And so we're fighting to get back those workers. To think that we could somehow get all those people back and then add another 100,000 nurses, it's just not realistic. There's there's two basic problems with the rule. The first is the workers aren't out there. Mm -hmm. If you look at the staffing requirements and the way buildings are staffed right now, we'd have to hire over 100,000 RNs and certified nurses. They're not there. The money's not there. It would cost about $6 billion to do that. That's $400,000 a building. Nursing homes don't make that much money. That's right. So it's just crazy. And then there's all, all sorts of specifics about the rule that make no sense. 
the 120,000 LPMs that we have working in our buildings, many of them doing great work, right. they don't get counted. You know, if we could count them in the in the numbers, most buildings would, would be able to hit this. Yep. But because they're not counted, less than five percent of the buildings in the country meet the meet this requirement. So we we need every provider, whether you're a member or not, and you're listening to this, we need you to, to submit a comment to CMS to let them know what you think about this. Again, whether you're a member or not, you can go to our website, org. And at the top of the banner, there's a thing to click on that shows you how to submit a comment. We need to get thousands of comments to CMS. The comment period's open until November 6th, so people have got to get on this. We think if we make a huge response, get some folks from Congress to stand up for us, we can eventually prevail on this thing. But if we sit back and do nothing, we're going to be in real trouble. And, and the response has to come from vendor partners as well. Absolutely. And I mean, we, we need vendor partners to, to let them, you know, let CMS know what, how, how tragic it would be if thousands of buildings ended up having to close. Yeah, and I, I know you're from Kansas. I'm from rural Iowa. We take care of patients in rural Mississippi and Alabama. And, you know, those rural hospitals are fighting for those RNs and don't have enough RNs, let alone trying to find an overnight shift, you know, in, in rural rural Mississippi. I, I just can't see it. I don't know how a building would make it. No, it's ridiculous. So there's a 24-7 RN requirement, which we would love. We would love to have an RN in our buildings every minute of the day. But in Kansas, there are nursing homes that, that have 15 beds. Right. They have the same 24-7 RN requirement as the homes in Manhattan and New York City have that have 600 beds. Right. That's why trying to do a rule that fits every building across, it doesn't make any sense, and we got to stop it. It's, it's very frustrating. And it, 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 you know, all of these folks, like you said, these LPNs, they've, they've been completely devalued by the way this rule was set up. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, Stacy and I worked a lot of shifts in our buildings, and it's not because we're saints. It's because we would be short-staffed, and we, we would be the third third person that would be called when we were short-staffed. So we right. worked a lot, of, a lot of night shifts, and I worked a lot of shifts side-by-side -side with LPNs, and they are great. They, they gave me a level of comfort that... We knew what we were doing, they knew what they were doing, and the patients were going to be okay. And to say, which they actually say in the rule, that they have no impact on quality, it's not only ignorant, it's disgraceful, and it's 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 just mean to the LPNs. It's, it's not right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I, I think by your organization's estimates or the, the organization that did the survey for you, the, the cost of implementing this is north of uh, $6 million. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of times associations or lobbyists don't they'll exaggerate numbers and all that. Or we, This is no exaggeration, and we don't have to guess because there's the PBJ data, the payroll-based journal data, requires every nursing home in the country to submit their staffing on every shift. So we had an accounting firm go in and look at the exact staffing that exists today in every nursing home in the country, and then you look at how short that is of the requirement. It's 102,000 nurses short. You multiply that by what you have to pay a nurse, and it's $6 billion. And the, the, the policy is completely unfunded. We would have to come up with that out of our pockets. Over half the facilities in the country would close for that reason alone. Yeah, that's pretty tough, man. Thanks, Mark. So despite what some critics are claiming, uh, it's probably fair to say the industry is changing and changing for the better. Uh, how have your members evolved in terms of delivering better care over the past decade or so? 
And to what do you attribute those positive changes, Mark? Yeah, I, I would go back more than one decade. I'd go back, clear back to the 1970s, my first images of, of nursing homes. And I remember in the late 60s, I was born in 1957, you know, going with our Cub Scout troop to a nursing home. And I think it got, I never want to come back to with this place again because they were, they were not great places back then. They have evolved dramatically. Um, as we've taken care of people that are sicker and sicker, they have become much more sophisticated on the clinical side. Uh, as we've done much more rehab than we used to do, they've become sort of miniature rehab hospitals at the same time. They've become very sophisticated health centers. And unfortunately, our critics who have no experience in nursing homes, they just continue to go back to their vision of nursing homes back in the 70s. Things have evolved. Uh, our facilities are, have, have become much, much different. Uh, I think part of that has to do with technology. Uh, we've, we have embraced technology. But, but, you know, when Stacy and I had our facilities in the early 2000s, electronic medical records were just starting. Now virtually every operator in the country has an EMR system. I also attribute to the fact that we take care of sicker and sicker people, so our clinical capabilities have had to improve. When you look at real data and not these anecdotal stories that our critics have out there, you look at the real data, we are clearly improving. We are measured on 22 quality measures. Every single building in the country is. We've improved on 19 of them over the last 10 years and continue to see improvement. When you survey families that have people in uh, buildings or the residents themselves, there's an 87% degree of satisfaction. It's only people that are disconnected to us, that aren't involved, that never see us, uh, that, that make these crazy claims about us, but we have made significant improvements. I mean, I see it every day. I mean, all we have to do is bring the HHS secretary to a facility. I mean, let, let's let's you and I do that. Yeah, I would love to do that because, you know, I, I am convinced that no one that was connected with writing the rule has any long-term care experience, has spent very few days in buildings. I think if we could get every member on that team to spend two days in buildings, they would have a much different picture of us. It, it would change their life. Yeah. It would change their life to see all these providers that are out there working their heinies off every single day, doing God's work, taking care of folks who can't take care of themselves, taking care of the people that took care of us. They work very, very hard. Oh. And they just need to see that. Right. And I, I don't think they want to see it. Yeah, that's I, some, of that, some of that really just bugs the Jesus out. Yeah, I, I spent some time yesterday with our two gold quality award winners that are Cascadia buildings in, in Idaho. Mm -hmm. And the two young women that, that are the administrators of those facilities talked about how this was a calling for them, how they come from small communities. So they're taking care of friends and relatives and parents of friends and relatives. And they would do anything they needed to do to make their lives as good as possible. That's what we're all about. We're not about this Wall Street, equity, terrible care stuff that the HHS talks about. We're really about people taking care of people. And you're right, if they could just see it, I think we'd be much better off. What lessons do you think we've learned coming out of COVID? What have we learned that's made us all better? Well, I think there's several things. One is that when the government prioritizes older people, good things happen, and when they don't, terrible things happen. Yeah. So what happened the first four months, four to six months of the pandemic is that long-term care facilities were not prioritized. The administration made a, 
decision that they needed to make, it ended up being the wrong decision, which was they thought that the epicenter of COVID was going to be hospitals. So they sent all the resources, all the testing, all the PPE to, to hospitals. You might recall that they even set up two huge aircraft carriers as offshore hospitals yep. that never saw any patients because it wasn't hospitals where the battle was being fought. It was being fought in long-term care facilities. When we were finally able to convince them of that and they started providing us the resources, things got a lot better. And then in December of 2020, a critical decision was made. Several days before the vaccine came out, residents of long-term care facilities were not at the top priority for the vaccine. They had a key panel that met and they put us at the very top of the priority list. So our residents started getting shots right away at the end of 2020 and early 2021. And since then, the deaths have dropped dramatically. Yep. So I think, I think public policy lesson one is prioritize older people. They're very vulnerable. They get sick quickly it's, you know, and they've got to be taken care of. I think priority, I think lesson number two has to do with things that we have learned related to infection control mm -hmm. and to RN time. Mm -hmm. As much as we are against this overall staffing mandate because it doesn't make any sense the way it's been implemented, we believe that we've learned that there needs to be an increased emphasis on infection control and on RN hours. RN hours matter. You look at the data and it clearly indicates that. Uh, and so I think you're going to see our members doing, to the extent that they're capable of doing, really increasing their emphasis on infection control and getting as many RN hours as possible in the buildings. Yeah, we see that. I mean, I was right there at the Operation Warp Speed with all those vaccination decisions. I was the long-term care pharmacist on that group that you just talked about. And it, we, we were just sitting there beating the table going, this is where it has to go yeah. first. Yeah. And they finally realized it. But, I mean, you can see the data. The day the vaccine started in the nursing homes, in one month, the, the death rate was straight down. Yeah, it's amazing. It is amazing. And, and even with the ups and downs that we've had with COVID in the community and in our buildings, the deaths have still stayed low. Yep. Thank God. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And kind of staying on, on the topic of COVID, if, if I could, you mentioned yesterday, Mark, that um, you, you seem to think the worst of it is over. Do you think that um, nursing homes are pretty much out of the woods, or do you think there's a risk that some other more viral strain of the virus could come along and, you know, throw another punch at the industry? Well, you know, when you look at the history of pandemics across the globe and for many centuries, 99% of the time they follow a pretty predictable pattern, which is exactly what COVID did. They go up and down for several years, and although you have uh, increases in cases from time to time, when they come back, they're not as dangerous as the, as the prior form that was out there. So I think that we'll probably have COVID out in the community and in our buildings for decades to come. But in all probability, it will not be as harmful as what we faced in the past. And we'll learn how to deal with it the same way we hopefully learn how to deal with the flu and other things. So I think on the clinical side, knock on wood, it's over. Now, there have been some occasional situations where things have come back and been quite bad. Yeah. So we, we can't assume that we're okay. We have to, have to stay vigilant. We have to get everybody vaccinated, residents and staff. And we have to stay on top of it every year. But I think that what we saw in the certainly the last six months of 2020, with tens of thousands of people dying, uh, I don't think we're going to have that again. Well, I sure hope that's the case. So when I first started, um, long-term care kind of defined itself as being high-touch, not high-tech. 
clearly that's changed. I mean, just look around the expo hall here and how many of the exhibitors have technology integrated to what they're doing. From your perspective, Mark, how has technology really kind of changed the game for long-term care? Well, it's clearly made us much better and more efficient. Um, so Stacy and I operated in a time when there were not electronic medical, medical records. And so you, you would get orders and you would send information via fax and you know, you'd try to read everybody's handwriting and sometimes you could, but usually you couldn't. And you'd make medication mistakes and you'd make scheduling mistakes. People would come into our facilities and they would be on like 15 different drugs from five different doctors and the, 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 each of the doctors didn't know the other meds that the folks were on. We were getting people well just by getting their medications right. Exactly. We, were, we were getting them approved. Well, now with the electronic medical records, uh, it, it's, it's been a game changer. The residents are getting much better care. There's much more ability for folks to understand what the, all, the total treatments are, are et cetera. We're seeing efficiencies being created in staffing by some of the technology that's out there. We're seeing uh, uh, monitoring devices on residents that allow us to keep track of exactly how they're doing, even though we may not be in their room all of the time. We're seeing progressive providers uh, using the data from their software programs to, to predict in advance where is it that somebody might be getting sick, what intervention do we need to do to keep this person from falling? Uh, catching illnesses at a very early stage. So it's it's been a matter of improving patient care, but also improving our efficiency at the same time. So it's been a game changer. Yeah, COVID did one thing. It helped really focus on medication optimization because because of the staffing levels being so low uh, and having difficulties, you, you, you don't have the time to do all those med passes and you can't be on 15 meds anymore. So there's a lot of optimization that's happened. We're, we're down, I think, on average to nine and a half to 10, 10 meds. So that's really good. I mean, 10 still is a lot, yeah. but we're optimizing. And, and, and the, 10, the 10, though, are the whole care team knows about them. That's right. I mean, back in the old days, in the 90s and early 2000s, we were operating, we would get orders from doctors where the other doctors didn't know about the meds that the person was on. Yep. So I, I think those days are over. Well, 10,000 people a day are turning 65. And yep. so obviously this industry is going to thrive and it may thrive a little bit differently in the next 20 years, but we're going to need us. We're going to yep. need long-term care. We're going to need assisted living. Um, I think in January, 10,000 people a day start turning 80 yep. for the next 15 years. So it's, uh, it's going to be a busy time for all of us. So, yeah. The thing that I think about is that, it, it, you're right, in 2025, the oldest boomers will start turning 80. Mm -hmm. And that's when demand for our services is really going to be there. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about this. We're not going to see like a sudden spike up in census overnight because of that. Mm -hmm. But we're going to see a steady improvement in census, I think, for the next three to five to ten years because so many people are coming into the 80 to 85 age category and because the number of nursing homes is declining. Right. You, you, you put those two facts together and... Uh, I feel pretty good about where we're going to be from a census perspective. Yeah. And our senior living partners in, in, in NCAL, they're seeing the acuity level in, in the assisted living rise a little bit as well. So vendor partners working on clinical programs, falls reduction, working with memory care units, all that's going to be uh, continue to be very, very important for, the, for those facilities that don't have tons of RNs. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, and I, uh, other people have said this, but I think it's true. People that used to be in hospitals are now in nursing homes, and people that used to be in nursing homes are now in assisted living. And That's right. People that used to be in assisted living are now at home. Home. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, 
So we're, we're all taking care of a tougher population to take Ab care of. Absolutely. So, Mark, um, obviously COVID did some terrible things to staffing levels in the industry, but staffing has been a problem for quite a while. What do you see your members doing to help better recruit and retain employees in this environment? Well, you know, our members are doing everything they can, and we've seen a material increase in wages, which is a good thing. You know, certified nurse aid wages have gone up 20 to 25% across the country. We're getting to a point where somebody can think of a certified nurse aid as a career and, and make a living wage. Um, so one, one impact has been an increase in wages. The other thing is that, and this is also very different just in the last 15 years, is that most providers and all progressive providers are deeply committed to employee engagement and satisfaction. Mm -hmm. They're measuring the satisfaction levels of their employees. They're crafting engagement programs to do the most they can to retain employees. And so we see that even though the sector has a very high turnover rate, particularly among nurse aides, there are some providers who have been hyper-focused on employee engagement satisfaction and have pretty darn low turnover rates. I think you're gonna see all providers, certainly if they wanna survive, uh, make a major emphasis on employee engagement and satisfaction because in the long run, that's gonna be the only way to, to staff our buildings. Mark, you've, you've led this industry through probably the toughest part of all of our careers, and you've done a fantastic job of it. And looking ahead, what are your hopes and dreams, you know, and goals for nursing home industry in the future, you know, with respect to quality, and how can stakeholders collaborate to help achieve that? Well, in the, in the very short run, we still have to get through COVID. And, you know, we, we have just finished two years of Phil Fogg being our national chair. And Phil is an amazing leader. And one of the things that he really kept us focused on is he said, all of us really want to be long-range planners. We want to think about the next five to ten years. But we don't have the luxury to do that right now. We've got to get the sector to survive so that we can have the luxury to do that. Mm -hmm. I think we're getting to the point now where we have the luxury to do that. We're not quite through all of this yet, and we've got to get past some of these crazy policy ideas, and then we can really start focusing on the future. But what, what I see for the sector is very exciting. The most exciting development in my mind has been the ability of operators to get involved in population health management, where we actually get paid, we get incentivized for keeping our residents healthy. And so whether it's an ISNIP or the, or the REACH ACO program, and there are other programs, there are now about 100,000 lives across the country that are, of residents that are enrolled in these programs. And so we're not just you know, having folks in our buildings, you know, giving them a place to be until they die. We're giving them a place to live. Right. We're, we're working with them in advance to keep them healthy. We're, we're giving them a purpose in life. So that's one. It, it, that's something that I, I hope the sector embraces. And for the next five to ten years, and uh, ten years from now, almost everybody in the building is involved in a population health management program that's keeping them healthy. I also see rural facilities being able to thrive as long as they become the epicenter for health service in their communities. And I think there will continue to be a role for for rural facilities. So I'm. I want to get past this COVID stuff. We've still got a little ways to go, but then I'm very excited about where things are headed down the road. That's awesome. Awesome. So unfortunately, uh, while we could talk all day, uh, we were kind of running out of time. So uh, before I let you go, Mark, uh, let's talk uh, briefly about messaging. 
uh, to some of your constituencies. If, if there's one message you want to get across to CMS and other regulators right now, what would you say that message is? Okay. Can you, like, can I be censored if I give the wrong answer? <laughs> no. Uh, I, so there's one message that I won't give that I'm thinking of. But uh, <laughs> the other message would be TJ's advice. Come to out and look at some buildings. Spend some time in some buildings. Even if you can't spend two days, spend two hours. Walk around and talk to residents. Walk around and talk to frontline staffers. There just needs to be a greater familiarity with what's going on in buildings than there is right now. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, finally for me, um, you know, you represent more than 11,000 providers. What's, what's your message to them right now? Well, to the 11,000 SNF providers we have and another 4,000 assisted living building providers, I would say you need to weigh in with CMS right now. Uh, we have a comment period that's open until November the 6th, and we need your help in doing that. When that's over, we want you to come to D.C. We're going to bring members to D.C. every week that Congress is in session until this battle is over. And then finally, I would just say thanks for what you do in your buildings every single day and every single night. The fact that you continue to work through COVID and keep at it is amazing, and it's an honor to represent you. And, you know, together we're going to get through all this. Great. Well, thank you, Mark. You bet. Well, TJ, I think it's fair to say uh, we learned a few things this morning. Oh, for sure. We always do. <laughs> well, uh, that's going to be the final word. Now, before we do sign off, a couple of thank yous are in order. Uh, first of all, a big thank you to Governor uh, Mark Parkinson for joining us this morning. Thank you, Mark. Also, a special thanks to Farm America, whose uh, generous support made this presentation possible. To learn more about ways Farm America can help deliver world-class pharmacy services to your organization, uh, those of you here can just stick around. Uh, those listening in, uh, please visit them online at www.farmerica.com. Alongside Mark Parkinson and TJ Griffin, this is John O'Connor wishing you health and happiness. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Hey, thanks.